Hey everybody, welcome back. As you can see, I'm home again this week. Uh, so I am delighted to have both more reliable internet uh, and of course back to my congenial surroundings here. Um, yes, the Signum banner's back, Yana, exactly. Uh, you'll also notice I'm starting class on time, uh, which is a nice change from last week. Um, so, uh, yeah, so my apologies for the irregularities last week. Uh, two different irregularities caused uh, by my travel last week. First, the fact that my started class like 45 minutes late. And second, uh, that I was not, we weren't able to post the recording for many days. That was also my, because the recording of the class was sitting on my laptop uh, and the ups, the upload speed of the internet in the place where I was, was so slow that uh, the recording was only like a third of the way uh, uploaded after about 12 hours uh, of solid uploading. Anyway, it was it was off. I basically I had to wait till I get home, got home to upload it. So that was why. Um, uh, for those of you who are watching the recordings and uh, and listening to the recordings, that's why uh, it didn't get posted forever. Uh, it was uh, totally uh, my fault in that way. Anyway, okay. But tonight we are moving on and we're going to finish The Lost Road, not the whole book, of course, but rather The Lost Road story itself, uh, chapter three of this volume. And then we're going to move on to the annals of Beleriand, of Valinor and Beleriand uh, next time and basically be looking at what is essentially the final form of the Silmarillion material. Uh, you know, uh, prior to the writing of the Lord of the Rings, right? So this is kind of a big deal. If you want to sort of see, uh, you know, how the writing of the Lord of the Rings really developed um, Tolkien's ideas about the First Age and everything, um, it's, it's you know, this is kind of the, the snapshot that we want to see, right? So uh, anyway, so that's going to be, so we're going to be shifting back to that Silmarillion material starting next time. But tonight we're still in, uh, Numenor, and uh, yeah, for those of you, uh, for those of you who are, I don't know how many of you here with us are new, um, but uh, there is the in-house chat. My apologies, uh, I have still neglected uh, to get a chat window put up on our Lost Road page. My apologies. Uh, so for those of you who are uh, uh, interested in participating uh, in the chat behind my back while class is going on, uh, you can go to our Mythgard Academy Dracula page, uh, and uh, there is a link to the chat window from there, and that's where you'll find the other students who enjoy uh, 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 commentary as the uh, uh, as the class is going on. And actually, for those of you who do engage in this chat, I actually want to address one of the obs- one of the discussions that you guys. I hear, I've heard rumors. I, I, I don't. I, I never. I never look for logs or anything like that. I've never seen the chat room that you guys are always doing behind my back. But uh, so I just want to let you know your comments are are truly safe from me. I don't. I don't. I don't read them. Uh, but I did hear rumors about one topic that you guys were talking about, which I'm actually going to address um, uh, pretty soon here in this class. So anyway, okay. Um, announcements though, before we get going. So first, uh, biggest announcement, registration is open for Midmoot for our, our annual conference, the Mid-Atlantic, uh, Im- imaginative literature symposium. I keep forgetting the long and really impressive title that people came up with for that. Uh, but anyway, it's our fantasy science fiction literature conference. Um, we have run it for the last several years. It's kind of grown bigger and more awesome every year. Um, and, uh, this year is no 
exception. It is even bigger and more awesome. Those of you who came last year, about 50 people or so came last year, and it was really cool. We had uh, a one-day conference at the University of Maryland, uh, and it was really neat. Great to see so many of you, several of you who are regulars here. I got to meet for the first time uh, then, which was really great. Um, and Midmood is such a is, is such a great experience. It's a it's it's a simple uh, kind of uh, uh, no frills, low cost, high fun, uh, really great time. Um, and uh, this year, it's going to be the big thing is it's going to be a two day conference this year. We're doing uh, we're doing we're doing it more well, sort of day and a half basically. We're going to go all day Saturday, and then we're going to go uh, Sunday morning as well. Um, ending like Sunday afternoon so people can get home when they need to get home. So um, we have. Um, so at the weekend in question in which Midmoot is going to ha- be happening is September 24th and 25th. So right after Bilbo's birthday, uh, come with us at Midmoot. We'll be celebrating Bilbo's birthday. Um, again, once again, we're going to be located at the University of Maryland. Once again, uh, it's going to be a very low cost affair. It costs $30 for the conference. So two day conference, 30 bucks registration fee. Very, very, uh, very simple. I, st- I said last year that it was the, it was the most fun you could have for that money. I, I still think that that's actually true. Uh, I don't think you can have more fun than we're going to have at Midmoot uh, legally for $30. Well, most of the illegal fun is costs a great deal more than $30. So I still think that's safe. Um, now, one other thing that we're doing this year, uh, again, for those of you who came last year will remember we got together and all went out to eat somewhere last time which was kind of complicated uh, and like not everybody was able to squeeze in and everything. So this year we decided to do it differently, especially since we're doing sort of the two day thing in the middle on Saturday night. um, But after the Saturday sessions are done, we're going to uh, have a banquet. Uh, so we're going to have like a formally catered banquet. That way we know we have seats for everybody so we can all get together. Now that's priced separately because if any of you have ever done these things before know that uh, those things are always expensive. So we're actually, we've, we're ticketing that actually slightly less than cost um, uh, at $50 a person. So the tickets are, are $30 per person just to come to the conference or $80 for the conference and a seat at the banquet. So that, and that's... Um, that's that's how that's going to work. Um, so I encourage you to uh, uh, I encourage you to uh, to to register for that. Um, you can find links. I know there was a link posted on the uh, the uh, uh, the Midmoot Facebook page uh, for this. I can uh, give you the direct link here for those of you who are attending live. Uh, that in the chat window there is the link uh, to the registration page, and I would. Um, uh, and it's going to be, I, I, it will, will be, it'll be posted all over our website and everything soon too. So, uh, you should be able to, sh- should be able to see that. So anyway, I hope that you will consider if you're anywhere in the region, uh, coming to join us, uh, in September, uh, near DC and the university of Maryland. Now, another thing that I wanted to tell you sort of hint is coming, um, myth moot four, uh, is going to be huge and it's coming up next year. So we're thinking June, beginning early June, we're going to be coming together for an even bigger conference, uh, Mythmoot 4, which is going to be a big four-day conference, um, and it's going to be huge. We're going to have people from all, you know, uh, 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 Tolkien celebrities from all over the world, people from all over the field. It's going to be great. Uh, so just just a, just a kind of a hint, we'll, we'll be releasing more information about that as we go forward, but uh, uh, sort of keep that 
keep that in mind. Know that Mythmoot is coming, uh, and uh, this year is going to be awesome. Next year is going to be even is going to be twice as awesome. Um, all right, so let us. Uh, um, no, yeah, Mythmood is coming, Arthur, but it's it's no, it's has nothing to do with winter. In fact, it's going to be in summer. It's going to be in June, uh, so it'll be it'll be it'll be cool. Um, Karina, it's going to be actually it's going to be near near DC again. Near DC is the, the Mid Atlantic region remains sort of the 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 near the core of where uh, uh, so many of our people are. Um, we're going to be kind of traveling around. Uh, but uh, I hope we'll be traveling around more in the future. I would love to have more conferences like Midmoot, other places. Um, but we'll sort of see how that works. A lot of that has to do with the um, with the initiative of the folks in the Mid-Atlantic region, actually. Midmoot, uh, you know, which we're, you know, we're continuing again this uh, this September, began as a completely independent sort of grassroots movement, right, from the people who, uh, a lot of who met at the original Myth Moots that we did uh, down there, um, and they just wanted to get together and do an annual thing, and so they they, they did, and, and uh, you know, I have very little to do, uh, really, with the planning, so... Um, Anyway, let's. Uh, uh, so, so yeah. I mean, I would if there are others of you in other regions of the country or over in Europe or whatever who wanna who wanna talk about doing you know sort of a simple one day conference like Midmoot uh, was, you know where that came from. That'd be really cool. It'd be really interesting. Um, we, you know, I'd be totally happy to sort of talk with you about seeing if we could make that happen. Um, but of course, the biggest limitation that we have is well, of course, obviously. Uh, uh, limitation in funding, though that's not usually that big of a deal with this kind of thing. But then also, uh, uh, just time. I mean, um, we can't, it's not the kind of thing that we can just sort of, you know, organize and plan ourselves. But if we have people who are really enthusiastic about making it happen and can jump in and help us with the organization, uh, you know, that's something that we could totally talk about. So, anyway. Because again, it's not like we, we want to leave everybody else out. It's just that uh, the people, the the you know the Mythgard folks in the Mid Atlantic region, they've got their stuff together. You know, they're they're uh, they're really working on all this stuff. So, uh, so that's been great. It's been a wonderful place for us all to get together. So, uh, I've been excited about that. All right. Well, let's uh, turn back to. Um, uh, turn back to the Lost Road. I want to uh, try to make up for you with you guys for like coming late and staying late last time because I'm going to be like super efficient tonight. Um, I want to start here this evening by returning for a moment to the autobiographical stuff that we talked about last time. Of course, the way in which, you know, those uh, sort of very clear autobiographical uh, references and and uh, uh, sort of illustrations that we see from Tolkien. It's just, you know, as, as I said last time, I don't I don't generally I'm not a big fan of uh, uh, of drawing autobiographical conclusions from Tolkien's works or using Tolkien's autobiography as a lens through which to read his works. That's not my bag. Um but you just can't avoid it. I mean, this is one of two works that you just really can't avoid it. It's almost irresponsible to talk about the work and not talk about its connection to Tolkien's own perspective and his own life experiences at the time, The Lost Road, the other one being the story Leaf by Niggle that he wrote uh, later on. Um, and, we, you know, we talked about the, those, those, those things last time um, where we can see that kind of, you know, sort of what really does seem to be Tolkien expressing his own, uh, his own experience and his own uh, perspective on languages uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, sort of his, his theories and his feelings about that. Um, two additional notes I wanted to make on the 
autobiographical subject here at the beginning tonight before we uh, before we really dig back in. One, did you catch the 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 note from Alan and Unwin's reader? This is I I don't know how many of you are you know, scrupulously reading all of Christopher Tolkien's commentaries and everything, or if you're just kind of skipping through to the primary texts, which I can totally understand if you are, but there's really good stuff uh, in Christopher's commentary. Um, and I didn't make a slide of this because it's just a really short comment. So I just thought I would, I would I'd just read it briefly. Um, but again, this is kind of buried, but it was to me a really interesting moment. So it's when Christopher is talking about how uh, Tolkien had submitted, of course, The Lost Road to Alan and Unwin when they were fishing for more material, right? They're in the middle of publishing The Hobbit. The Hobbit is going great. They're fishing for more material. Um, So this is when uh, they're asking him for a sequel to The Hobbit. And he's like, well, um, how about this? And he sends them uh, the Lay of Lathian, right? The epic poem. Uh, And they're like, "Um, well, that's not quite what we were thinking of. And then he's like, well, how about this? And he sends them the the four chapters of The Lost Road that we've read. Um, And, uh, you know, they're like, well, that's not exactly what we wanted either. But but to me, the thing that was really fascinating is the note. And Christopher Tolkien, it's it's unknown. Like, there's no record of who exactly the external reader was that they, that, that, Alan and Unwin sent it to, but the comments that they got back from their reader, uh, the evaluative comments uh, on The Lost Road, um, so uh, Christopher tells us that the reader described it as immensely interesting as a revelation of the personal enthusiasms of a very unusual mind, right? Which I think is a really, really keen observation. I, I found that really fascinating because we have no reason to think that the person who was there, we don't know who the reader was, so who knows, but but we have no positive reason to think that the reader knew anything about Tolkien, right? Uh, you know, Often it's not even, you know, the, the, that's even kind of concealed, right? The manuscript will just be given sort of plain uh, to the to the, to the the reader, so they don't even know who it is. Um, we don't know for sure that that happened, but, but uh, that's fairly common. Um, anyway, we, we have no, no, no reason to think that the reader knew anything about this, but from reading The Lost Road, even the, the reader could tell that this was autobiographical, right? Or in a sense, it's not exactly what he says, but um, a revelation of the personal enthusiasms of a very unusual mind, right? So the, the sort of idiosyncrasies of Tolkien's thinking about, you know, Tolkien's whole perspective on language that are voiced through Albuin, especially in the first two chapters— really came through to this reader who presumably knew nothing about Tolkien or where this book came from. And yet even the reader was like, could not hide from the fact that this is, um, a little odd, right? This is, this is definitely slightly idiosyncratic and probably shows us a lot about, um, about the, 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 the way that the author thinks. Um, I agree, Arthur, that unusual mind is, is, is likely a kind of a, a left-handed compliment or, or a backhanded compliment. Um, seems like a, a kind of politeness, perhaps. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, 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 again, it was just a little, I, I didn't make a whole slide for that. It was just a little snippet. Um, but so that's, that's one thing. I just wanted to make sure that you noticed that, uh, as we were going through, cause I thought that was really cool. Second point, um, which is another little sort of stray moment in Christopher Tolkien's commentary, um, which I thought was even more interesting. And that one I did, uh, uh have a slide made of, okay. So this is him talking about 
Sauron and Numenor, right? This is from the Numenorian chapters, or rather Christopher's commentary on the Numenorian chapters. The teaching of Sauron has led to the invention of ships of metal that traverse the seas without sails, but which are hideous in the eyes of those who have not abandoned or forgotten Tol Arisea, to the building of grim fortresses and unlovely towers, and to missiles that pass with a noise like thunder to strike their targets many miles away. Moreover, Numenor is seen by the young as overpopulous, boring, overknown, every tree and grass blade is counted, in Herendel's words, and this cause of discontent is used, it seems, by Sauron to further the policy of imperial expansion and ambition that he presses on the king. When at this time my father reached back to the world of the first man to bear the name Elffriend, he found there an image of what he most condemned and feared in his own. Now that last sentence is the really important bit, right? Um, and I say this especially if you're, if if you you'll, it, it will it should strike you if you've been following along with our history of Middle Earth series all the way through, um, the remarkableness of this of that sentence should really jump out at you. I think um, if you're new to it, um, I mean, let me tell you, Christopher Tolkien very rarely opens up like that. He's very. Cherry of making that kind of interpretive comment. Christopher Tolkien, um, in you know his whole approach, his whole editorial approach, is he tries to be editorially neutral, as neutral as possible, as much simply just kind of presenting the things that his dad says. Almost never does he actually step forward and give like an authoritative interpretation. That seems to be what he's trying to avoid because in the position that he's in, not only as the editor of Tolkien's papers, but of course as Tolkien's own son, with whom to some extent Tolkien collaborated, especially in his later years, um, the, the, the impression that Christopher gives is that he doesn't want to put himself forward as like, I am the mouth of Tolkien, right? He doesn't want uh, to be saying, this is what the text means. That's That... It seems very clear that Christopher wants no part of that particular role, right? And he's generally pretty careful to uh, not do that. That sentence blew me away when I read I, when I read it this 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 past time. Um, uh, he found there an image of what he most condemned and feared in his own. So the the uh, and and it's not only that he is making an authoritative interpretive statement about Numenor here, but he's also making an autobiographical statement. Now, again, it's not that like there's anything shockingly revealing, right, about that autobiographical statement. I mean, we all kind of knew that about his dad, right, that uh, uh, the things that, you know, many of the things that Tolkien most condemned and feared in his own age were things like the progress of technology and its service for war, uh, the, uh, the, the, the development, the, the shift from um, notice the, the elements of there, right? We've got the military technology, of course, um, but it's not just the military technology. Uh, the, uh, the business about grim fortresses and unlovely towers. Read Tolkien's letters and you see that kind of thing a lot, right? That, that, that shift uh, to the robot age, as, he, as Tolkien called it, uh, the modern world 
where no longer do you have craftsmen taking pride in their work. Nobody builds beautiful things anymore. Um, that, you know, all modern things are built for utility and efficiency and, uh, and seem, uh, you know, almost, uh, almost by design to be ugly. Um, and nobody even cares about that anymore. That was a, a, a big deal uh, to him. And the, the business about the world being overknown, um, you know, that now the world, you know, that, that, that there's, there's like within our little small land, there's, there's no, there's no worlds left to conquer. And that itself is a really fascinating idea. And we'll come back to that a little bit um, later on when we return to the, to the Numenorean chapters a bit later on in class. But anyway, this is uh, this is fascinating to me. Uh, again, that just that that Christopher goes, he didn't have to say it, right? And sometimes he'll do that. He'll like sort of set it up, but he'll kind of back off from it, and he doesn't back off from it. He he sets it up, and then he he hits it, right? Um, and I I I found that really fascinating. And remember, it's not just this kind of interpretive statement where he again appealing to Tolkien's own autobiography and sort of making that link. Um, uh, between the text here and Tolkien's own personal beliefs, like his own his own sort of private opinions, um, but we see him even pointing to some of the stuff that Christopher is most guarded about, and that is the sort of the private domestic life of his own, of, of 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 Tolkien's family, right? Of Tolkien and Christopher's family. Um, those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales uh, one with me will remember the um, uh, the Cottage of Lost Play poems um at the beginning of that book um and especially the you know the you and me in the cottage of lost play the old version like the 1914 version of that poem um when christopher was sort of talking about the you know where this idea of the cottage of lost play came from and um and that you know that poem was a was obviously a love poem uh you know for edith the you know the woman that you know took christopher's mom right and uh and christopher like acknowledged that uh but only indirectly he was like the deeply personal relevance of this uh uh is clear and and then he just like backed off right? he wouldn't talk about it he gave no insight to it he's just like i'm gonna acknowledge that it's there and then leave it right and don't ask me any questions about that um he was extremely um he was extremely shy about that. Um, and the, the Tolkien family has always been very, very private and not wanting to sort of reveal much. So Christopher just ref- flat refuses to talk about the you know romance between his mom and his dad that obviously that poem was sort of taking part in. Um, but we do get a glimpse where uh, you, you remember the, 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 the note, the footnote in which Christopher Tolkien addresses um, Alboin's tendency to call Alduin boy. Right, he addresses him as boy, and Christopher Tolkien feels um, compelled to sort of jump in and make sure that people understand that's a term of affection, right? That's meant affectionately, and he backs that up by admitting that his dad called him boy when he was little. Um, so, and that was an, another thing that was like, whoa, Christopher Tolkien admitted that, right? But again, uh, yet another piece where where even Christopher Tolkien himself can't avoid. He's he is himself the the meticulous, you know, disinterested editor uh, of the history of Middle Earth is again is, is in, on multiple occasions getting drawn into revelations of the linkage between this story and the autobiography. So again, we can't we can't. Uh, we can't leave it behind. So, okay, two things then. 
um, uh, two two points that I'd make, or sort of two conclusions that I'd draw from this. That I no, really points that I'd make about the autobiographical stuff. Having 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 gone over that first, um, we can't. You know, there's no point. Uh, trying to turn away from the fact that this does this story does give us a kind of an insight into Tolkien's mind, which is in a sense it seems, or rather I should say we have reason to believe that we're being given a more direct kind of insight into Tolkien's mind and how he thinks than we usually get. Um, the autobiographical fallacy, right? That is, hearing what a character says or even what a narrator says uh, in a book and sort of assuming that that character or that uh, that narrator is speaking in the voice of the author right is really tempting but it's really important to resist that i mean i always that's one of the things i always try to be very careful about um because i find that often to be very very misleading um but this time again um i i think that it is fair for us to sort of cautiously think about that and I, and i certainly think you know, if somebody wanted, if somebody asked me, you know, what, how did, what was, what was it like? What was Tolkien's language invention like? Like, why was it that the invention of language was so central? What, what, how would you really explain the role that the invention of Tolkien's language is really played in the development of his stories? I mean, I hear, you know, I've said many times, lots of people talk about how, you know, he, he, first he made up the languages and then he made up, you know, and then they, he they kind of developed into stories or stories grew out of those languages. And there are a lot of people for whom that's just like, I don't get that at all. I mean, and it's not that they can't comprehend it is they can't relate to it. Right. Like I, 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 I can't understand how that's possible. If somebody was asking me, like, how would you explain that or how would you illustrate that, I would say, read The Lost Road, right? Albuin's description of how these words are coming to him and how these languages are developing, I mean, for my money, that's like closer to the, the, the closest thing that I can think of to a, to a real, um, you know, sort of a, a first-person illustration of Tolkien's own experience. And I think there is more insight that is uh, a sort of resting there uh, for us to have into this whole relationship between language, invention, and 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 story. Um, there's more insight, I think, to be had from the Lost Road than from almost anywhere else. Um, so, so, so again, you know, we we certainly there's a lot that we can do with that, and I think that the Lost Road is extremely valuable uh, for for that reason. That's the first point that I would make. But the second point is don't get carried away, right? Um, I still, again, if you know me, I still, my, my, my default is still to be resistant to drawing these kinds of autobiogra- autobiographical conclusions. So I still would urge caution, despite the fact that we clearly have a greater license in this text uh, than, uh, than anywhere else, such that even I would grant license to draw that kind of conclusion. But it would be very easy to get carried away, right? We can't assume that Albuin equals Tolkien, right? Albuin clearly is given, like much is put into Albuin's mouth, which is an expression of Tolkien's own experience. That seems really undeniable. Um, But that doesn't mean that Albuin is Tolkien. And it would be really easy to slide from the observation of these uh, autobiographical elements 
into drawing some pretty sloppy conclusions of the kind that I always resist, right? Like, for instance, um, the relationship between Alduin and Alboin, as it is described, right? Um, does this tell us something about Tolkien's relationship with his sons or with him and Christopher or something? No. No, not necessarily. We can't forget that despite the fact that so there, that there's, there's so much rich autobiographical material here, it's still a fiction, right? Alboin and Alduin are still, are still fictional characters that Tolkien is developing, and they are in their own story, right? So um, it, if we go too far, um, and I'm never willing to go that far down this road, um, if we go too far in... Um, express, you know, in, in sort of make it, we just end up doing, I think, really sloppy interpretation and that kind of, you know, the thing more than anything else, the thing that I am always most resistant to, um, in my mind, one of the clearest red flags, like the sign that you are going down the wrong path, uh, in reading a book is when you start drawing equal signs, right? Um, you know, when you, when you find yourself saying like, Alboin is Tolkien or Gandalf is Jesus or something like that. Like whenever you're doing a one-to-one equation and it's never that simple. It's never, ever that simple. And, uh, you're always barking up the wrong tree when you end up going that way. But again, I know how easy it would be, uh, to kind of having made that first inescapable connection between especially Alboin and Tolkien to then make the next what would seem perfectly logical conclusions, but I, 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 I resist them. Um, okay. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, uh, 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 talk about the second thing I want to talk about. So now, now I want to come back to the discussion that you got, that I, that I've heard. It's an unfounded, okay, not unfounded, but it's only a rumor. I've not seen this firsthand. Um, but I understand that, uh, next, that last week, uh, in the, uh, in the chat room, you guys were speculating about what Tolkien would have written about had he come up on the other side of the coin flip with C.S. Lewis, right? Had, so uh, he ended up getting time travel, right? And that's where the Lost Road came from. Uh, and so the question is, what would have happened had he come up with space travel? What, what, what would Tolkien's space travel story have looked like? Um, and, uh, and I thought that was an awesome question. And I, I was kind of shocked to find that I'd never actually thought of that. I, I mean, I never really asked myself that question. So it's a really fun question to think about. Um, and um, the thing is, I, 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 I can't imagine him just doing something completely different. I mean, like a, a totally unrelated story to his legendarium. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't buy that. Um, so I was going to make a joke about uh, what his space travel story would be. Um, but then as I was rereading again, preparing for this week, I came across it. I was like, Hey, actually, um, we have a, we have a, a, a bit of what, what, what I'm, what I am personally convinced would have been his space travel story as part of the Alfwina story, uh, that Christopher tells us about. Um, but this would do best of all for introduction to the Lost Tales, 
how Alfwina sailed the straight road. They sailed on, 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 over the sea, and it became very bright and very calm. No clouds, no wind. The water seemed thin and white below. Looking down, Alfwina suddenly saw lands and mountain, i.e. mountains or mountain, down in the water, shining in the sun. Their breathing difficulties. His companions dive overboard one by one. Alfwina falls insensible when he smells a marvelous fragrance as of land and flowers. He awakes to find the ship being drawn by people walking in the water, he is told very few men there in thousand in thousand years can breathe air of Arisea, which is Avalon, but none beyond. So he comes to Arisea and is told the lost tales. Yeah, this is the space story. That, so I can't remember. I'm like, <clears throat> there it is. There it is. Sailing the lost road. Right, right. The straight road. Because remember the whole business with the world made uh, made round and the, the, the sort of the tangential straight path, right? The, the straight path which which crosses the road, but not quite on the ground level, right? That's why the Numenorians in Middle-earth are always building the towers, remember, right? So they can kind of peek down the straight road even if they can't walk on it anymore. So, uh, I mean, this is the stuff that was in his mind at this point anyway, right? So I mean, this is why his time travel story ended up being a Numenor story. I, I'm convinced that his space travel story would have been a Numenor story too, right? Except it, the, the emphasis would have been even more on the following of the, of the straight path. I, I think this, that's, there you go. His space travel story is not, you know, from Earth to one of the planets that we see with our telescopes, um, but rather it would be voyaging on the straight road and coming to, to, uh, to tell Erisea, you know, to Avalon. And to uh, uh, and perhaps to Valinor beyond, um, it could be an Arendel story. I mean, goodness knows there's lots of space travelish stuff in the Arendel corpus, right? And so many different fragments of Arendel uh, that um, um, that we never get, right? That he never really fleshes out into stories, um, but it's all but it's all there, right? Yeah, exactly, Nancy. Like. Had that happened, maybe we would have gotten an Arendel story, right? The only fleshed out Arendel story ever, right? I mean, the, as it is, as it is, I think the fullest version of the Arendel story, I mean, there's what we get in the published Silmarillion. Um, the only other thing we ever get is Bilbo's poem at Rivendell. Uh, you know, the Arendel was a Mariner poem. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I totally. I totally think uh, that that's where Tolkien would have gone. Absolutely. So that, that that's my answer to the question. What would have happened had he come up space travel instead of time travel? Um, all right. So uh, now let's uh, let me pause for a second because uh, we're going to go back to the Lost Road now. But I, I want to kind of map out for you where, where, where we're headed. So this way you can tell uh, how uh, close I am to staying on schedule for the rest of class. Um, as we finish up the Lost Road, this is what I want to do first. I want to I want to um, back up for a second and look at sort of the bigger picture that began to grow. Right, he started the 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 original concept of the Lost Road seems to have been sort of one jump time travel, right? So um, from um, from the twentieth century, right, with Alboin and and Alduin as we as, as we begin in the first two chapters, jumping back to Numenor, right. But then he changes his mind, right? And the story expands outward, as his stories so often do. Um, so that's the first thing I want to look at. I want to look at 
how that happened, what we see there, and what the implications of that seem to be. After that, then I want to I be thinking about the major theme of this work as a whole. Of course, The Lost Road is unfinished. We don't really know where the story was going to go or what was going to happen, but we actually have quite a bit. Christopher Tolkien throws so much stuff at us, and it's awesome. I love uh, the work that Christopher Tolkien has done in his editing of The Lost Road in particular. Um, I mean, you know, wonderful. I can't thank Christopher Tolkien enough for all the work he did on all of the History of Middle-Earth series, but I think the uh, the material that he digs up and throws at us here uh, in The Lost Road is super cool, and it enables us, I think, to see, you know, a pretty good glimpse of the whole story concept, the sort of the, what are the central themes of this story, at least at the outset, right? Um, they might have changed and developed over time as Tolkien was writing it, but but where was he looking at, you know, what 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 was he looking at from the beginning? That's uh, So that's the next thing I want to talk about. So what are the major themes? Then I want to go back to Numenor, look at the Numenor story a little bit more closely. We didn't finish that. We didn't really get there last time, so I, I, I want to do that. Because, of course, there's more than just the one big major theme. I want to look at what, what we get there uh, in Numenor. The drama there is a little bit more complex, so I want to kind of uh, sort that out a little bit. I want to think briefly about the father-son story that is like the, the elbowing out in trajectory, you know, sort of the, the central plot thread of the entire Lost Road. What can we see from that? Where was it headed, as far as we can tell? Because um, uh, uh, that, I think, is, 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 is really interesting. And then, finally, um, you'll know that I finished 100% of my material. If we get to this, I want to look at the, the brief glimpse that we get into Tolkien's mythic imagination uh, in the story, especially the poem of King Sheev. I hope that you got, that you didn't skip the poem of King Sheev, because it is awesome. Um, and I think King Sheev is such a, 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 a fascinating case study of, well, frankly, how Tolkien's mind works, like how Tolkien's creative process works. Um, so um, we'll, uh, we'll see if we get as far as King Sheev uh, tonight in class. So that's what we're going to do. So, Let's look at the development of the story, right? So, okay, so he got as far as most of the way through chapter four before this big idea bursts in, right? We interrupt this novel for a big new idea that will vastly expand and totally change uh, the direction of this novel. That's, again... uh, if you've been studying Tolkien with me for any amount of time, you'll know this is a thing that happens to Tolkien, right? Uh, with some regularity. Uh, uh, so, I mean, which is cool, right? I mean, that's what happened in The Lord of the Rings. As we'll see if we do The Return of the Shadow, um, that, that's the whole Lord of the Rings comes that way, right? I mean... We have another fun Hobbit adventure, and then bam, a Nazgul shows up, and all of a sudden we're in a different place, and the whole story goes in a different direction. Um, you know, it's, it's often a great thing when it happens, but sometimes it derails the entire story. <clears throat> so, um, okay, okay. Uh, so let's look at uh, let's look at where this happens. Uh, this is Christopher's explanation of and uh, his, his his giving of Tolkien's notes. This seems to be the inception of the new idea. Uh, at any rate, on a separate sheet, he wrote, Work backwards to Numenor and make that last. 
adding a proposal that in each tale a man should utter the words about the eagles of the lords of the west, but only at the end would it be discovered what they meant. I love that. Remember, Albuin says that. Albuin is looking at and he sees the clouds coming up and he says, it is the eagles of the lords of the west come upon Numenor, right? But he doesn't understand what that means. So the idea of having that idea of the eagles of the lords of the west coming upon Numenor being repeated again and again and again, and only in the end, uh, you know, do we see the significance of the eagles of the lords of the west coming up? That is brilliant. That would be awesome. Um, Okay, this is followed by a rapid jotting down of ideas for the tales that should intervene between Alboin and Alduin of the 20th century and Elendil and Herendil in Numenor, but these are tantalizingly brief. Lombard story? A Norse story of ship burial, Vinland. An English story of the man who got onto the straight road? A Tuatha de Danann story, or, or Tirnanog? A story concerning painted caves? The Ice Age, Great Figures in Ice, and Before the Ice Age, The Galdor Story, Post-Beleriand, and the Elendil and Gilgalad Story of the Assault on Thu, and finally, the Numenor Story. Okay. Um, That's really interesting, right? So, we looked at Alboin and his desire to see past cultures, right? This this, uh, longing that he has to hear old languages spoken by the original speakers, to see their cultures, right? Remember how he wanted to bring together um, language, you know, right? Philology, the study of the development of languages over time, archaeology, right? The study of material culture over time, and, uh, uh, and, and mythology, right? The study of, of the development of stories over time. Um, and, you know, and so this idea is like by, by, by doing all three of those, if you do all three of those things and do them all really well, you can, you can get some kind of, you can hear some kind of echo of the complete story of these cultures, right? This is what, this is, this is, this is Alboin's fantasy, right? And his desire uh, is going to be fulfilled, but fulfilled in a much more direct way than he was anticipating um, by being able to actually be sent backwards Somehow, in time, the mechanism right is never fully explained by Elendil, who's a bit evasive on that uh, on that subject. Um, but we see. So, what are some observations that you make about this? What jumps out at you from this this list? Be really interested uh, to um, to hear about that. Okay, so a couple things. Right, first, notice the last alliance is going to make the list. Right, so the the last alliance he envisions. The Last Alliance is being part of this story, right? So again, we see that that element which came up again and again and again. One of the one of those core elements of the Numenor story as it was as it was unfolding in the Fall of Numenor, back from Chapter One, um, is now uh, is 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 he's looking to integrate that into the Lost Road, right? It's one of these jumps. Um, notice, yes, Arthur, the Ice Age. And the date of the Ice Age... So, okay, so first of all, um, the Ice Age stuff and the painted caves. Tolkien was fascinated by the, the Lascaux cave paintings and stuff. That, you know, this, in the early 20th century, the, these uh, prehistoric cave paintings were being discovered. Um, if you remember, I talked about this a tiny bit, but if you've read the Father Christmas letters, you'll see some of the coolest 
uh, sort of when Tolkien was discovering and really fascinated by the prehistoric cave paintings, he did a lot with prehistoric cave paintings and the Father Christmas letters, imitated them, right? Um, had uh, uh, Father Christmas talking about them, and 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 sort of the, there were cave paintings uh, in the, uh, the 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 vast cave systems up there near the North Pole, right? Um, some goblin cave paintings and some other cave paintings. Um, so Tolkien really really liked this. So Ice Age stuff, right? Okay. Um, but then before the Ice Age, this seems to be going more or less backwards chronologically, right? Lombard story, Norse story, English story, Tuatha de Danann story. Um, so we're getting like an Irish story from Irish mythology. Um, Ice Age story, right, of what we would normally call prehistoric and then past, right? Beyond that back towards Beleriand, right? Back towards Beleriand and the time immediately afterwards, back to the Last Alliance. So yes, Elendil and all this would be pre-Ice Age. And remember, that was even, that was hinted at, right? That was hinted at uh, in the earlier part of the, in chapter one of The Lost Road. Remember the conversation that, uh, that Albuin has with his dad, right? And they're thinking about how if you keep going back further and further back, what will you find, right? And his dad speculates that if you go further and further back, what you find is cruder and more primitive stuff, right? Cruder and more primitive language and culture and stories, right? And Albuin says, I wonder, right? I wonder if the... He, he seems... He doesn't correct his father, doesn't argue with his father, but he seems to at least hold open the possibility that if you go back further, what you find is something greater, right? Something that people are reaching back to, not not a civilization which has risen from crudity to, to our modern sophistication, but rather something even greater from which our society has fallen. That seems to be the implication of Albuin's very terse, I wonder, right? Terse but suggestive, I wonder. And this outline certainly seems to... Uh, uh, seems to suggest the same thing. Um, okay, so um, so all right. So what do we what do we see? Well, let's look at let's look at his his mapping out more more closely. Right, this is the other thing that Christopher gives us here. My father, then, as I judge, roughed out an outline for the structure of the book as he now foresaw it. Chapter three was to be called a step backward: Alfwina and Eadwina the Anglo-Saxon incarnation of the father and son, and incorporating the legend of King Sheev. So that was all going to be chapter three. Chapter four, the Irish legend of the of Tuatha de Danann, an oldest man in the world. Chapter five, prehistoric north, old kings found buried in the ice. Chapter six, Beleriand. Chapter, presumably chapter seven, Elendil and Herendil in Numenor. Okay, so, uh, and as Christopher Tolkien points out immediately afterwards, he seems to have dropped the Lombard bit, which is interesting, uh, because the, you know, the, the Lombardic connections to Alboin and Alduin, their names, right, um, which are emphasized there at the beginning, so it seems kind of odd that he would then skip the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Langobardic stuff. But anyway, um, okay, so, so, so that was going to be the sequence. So we're going to be going backwards in time. Right, twentieth century to Anglo-Saxon England to Irish legend to the prehistoric North to Beleriand to Numenor, right? Um, so that would be presumably post 
Numenorean Beleriand as we're going backwards in time, right? So the Beleriand in question would probably be like the Last Alliance, right? That we're that that he would be uh, talking about there, I presume, or some sort of post, um, you know, post fall of Numenor Beleriandic uh, um, moment there. So, okay. Um, so that's really interesting, right? That's really cool. So, so what do we see? Do we see? Notice the implications of this, right? Think back to the big picture now. Again, remember that as I was saying at the very beginning of this class, Numenor is kind of coming in here as a sequel to the Quinta, right? He's he's finished the story of the Eldar, and he he kind of wrapped that up, right? And then the Eldar faded or went away, and the Dominion of Men comes in. The end, right? That's the end of the Lost Tales. Um, but now we have, as I was arguing with the fall of Numenor stuff, he's reopening the story and rewriting that ending so as to accommodate this next chapter, right? Which is the chapter of the rise and fall of Numenor. Uh, again, that emphasis on the fall being, you know, Numenor being designed to fall from the beginning, the fall of it being uh, absolutely central to its conception from the very beginning. Um but remember that other central thing, which seems to be, I think, if if I had to point to one, remember I, I isolated four elements, which seem to be the four, seem to me to be the four core um, uh, concepts of the Numenor story that we saw in that initial outline of the fall of Numenor, right? Um, so the, first, the fall, right? The falling. Second, uh, the, uh, uh, what was the second thing? <laughs> oh yeah. Second was the temptation by Sauron, right? So uh, they, they, they are tempted and led astray and end up uh, uh, falling into moral corruption. The third is the uh, the world made round, and the fourth is then the uh, the the last alliance that comes afterwards, and and which is the culmination of sort of the whole Numenor the Numenorian saga, as it were. Um, okay, so I identified those as the four core elements, but if I had to choose one. Right. What is the core element? What is the sort of the heart of the Numenor story? I would say the world made round. Right. I mean, even remember, Christopher pointed out on that outline. Right. Tolkien started that outline with a sketch of the world made round. Right. Um, I, I, I think I think that's really the 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 core conception of the Numenor story. Like, what is the sequel? What is what is the what is the new thing being added in the sequel? Um it would be the world made round. The That is the ushering in of a radically new age. And this is kind of a big deal. On the one hand, that's kind of continuous um, with what he had been doing before in the Book of Lost Tales and in the Quenta subsequently um, and the Embarcanta and those other writings that we studied in the shaping of Middle-earth. Um, that is to say, those were always about the uh, sort of a, you know, a sea change in the history of the world, right? The days of the elves, you know, the the gods and the elves, but then there comes an end of those times and the dominion of men comes and the firstborn fade and the secondborn increase, right? So that idea of a, a very significant shift in the world from the old days to the modern era uh, is, uh, is, and of course to Tolkien, the modern era begins a long time ago, right? Not what we would call the modern world. Um, uh, really, you could kind of break it down basically historical and prehistorical. But anyway, um, so th- that shift was always part of it. The sequel really, I think, emphasizes that shift, right? And this new idea that, okay, no, no, no. It's not just that the elves faded and, you know, human culture just kind of took over, right? No, there's a radical break, 
right? There is a there is a demarcation when the world fundamentally we live in a different like literally a different world um, than these older stories took place. So so this um, this this schism this chasm that opens right between the old world and the new world that I think is to me the most momentous element the 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 real core thing in the Numenor story. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so I mean, we, we see how this is sort of developing through the Lost Road, right? We're reaching back in, 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 in going Eftseeth, right? In going backwards. Um, we're going back to that moment, right? That is the climactic moment. Remember the, the rising of the eagles of the Lords of the West, right? What is at the heart, that, that, that repeated motif that's going to connect every single story that he's going to do in The Lost Road, and it's all going to come to its, you know, all of that sort of foreshadowing and everything is going to come to its fulfillment in the destruction of Numenor, the downfall, and the, the curvature of the world, right? Um, the radical breaking of the old world and invention of the new. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and in that way, therefore we get sort of this through the story of the, through these, these other stories of later history, right? We get the sort of the real development of the new age, right? It's not just like, and here begin, beginneth the dominion of men, right? Um, uh, no, he's going to imagine what that really looked like, right? How, how, where does, where does human history begin, right? Having been sundered from the old world, the straight path having been lost to them, um, and their world made insular, right? Now it's, it's globed. You can't, you know, you just, you sail around and you come back and at the same point, you can no longer go, the West is taken away, right? You can no longer go there, though the longing for it isn't gone completely either, right? So, um, what happens then? Um, and he imagines what that looks like and connects it more and more to real history, right? As we can see through this outline, he's going to integrate it with, you know, the sort of the recorded mythology and recorded history of our world and imagine how those things all um, sort of um, fit together. Um, and uh, yeah, Brian, it is really interesting. Brian says, the, uh, Brian Dimmick says, the world made round is a new way to connect the world of the lost tales with modern England. It's a way to explain how the modern world was formed. And you're right, Brian. Um, you're, you, you allude, of course, to the fact that that was an impulse of Tolkien's at the beginning, right? In the Book of Lost Tales, we can see that. One of the things that Tolkien began doing um, in his mythology for England phase, right, in the Book of Lost Tales, um, one of the impulses we can see very clearly in the in the Book of Lost Tales is that impulse to write explanatory myth, right, that, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, how the camel got its hump kind of mythology, right, kind of mythic story. And uh, we see that, you know, we can see that in really simple things like the story of Tevildo, Prince of Cats and Huan the Hound. You know, how is it that uh, why is it the cats and dogs don't get along? Well, he's got a story to explain that. Right. Um, Two sort of more bigger things like the actual, you know, those of you who haven't read the Book of Lost Tales. um, If you read the Book of Lost Tales, you will find that. Uh, Tol Erisea, Elvenholm, literally becomes England. It's physically dragged over, and it's the island of England is the island of uh, of 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 Erisea in that initial conception. So he's he's physically explaining how does the island, and there's even a story about how Ireland gets pulled off from uh, from it, right, um, by Osse. So uh, anyway, so that's um, 
uh, that's that's we see that impulse in the early Tolkien very much, and it seems to kind of begin to go away. We don't see nearly so much of that kind of story, that kind of myth, uh, in the ways of Beleriand, for instance, and in the shaping of Middle-earth. We can still see some of it, but nothing like as much as we saw in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, so, Brian, it almost does seem like we have a almost a return to that. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, um, but um, but we can see him sort of explaining, how did we get to where we are, right? Um, and this story does seem to be interested in that which is um which is which is kind of cool um so but what is going to be that story so having looked at the outline um you know i I said i want to kind of piece together what is the what is the major theme of the story right can we get some kind of a sense of where this book was headed not not plot wise right but uh not just in outline form but thematically um, where was this book headed? What was this book about, this book that Tolkien was envisioning? Um, and my answer to that simply is longing longing and desire. That seems to be the thread that connects all these things. And here is where I really love all the fragments that Christopher Tolkien has given to us. And I want to go back and look at a bunch of these and see if we can kind of put these together. Uh, and I want to start with the poem... Uh, that Tolkien, that Christopher doesn't give us until the end uh, of this section called The Nameless Land. And uh, this is from the original poem, the one that was written back in the 20s, right? He went back and reworked this, according to Christopher Tolkien's guess, during and after the Lost Road period, right? Um, but uh, this poem seems to... Uh, uh, Tolkien kind of brought in to this tradition, right? This is just a this is just a snippet. O shore beyond the shadowy sea, O land forlorn where lost things are, O mountains where no man may be, the solemn surges on the bar beyond the world's edge waft to me. I st- I dream I see a wayward star, then beacon towers in Gondabar more fair, where faint upon the sky, on hills imagineless and far, the lights of longing flare and die. This is the end of the poem, right? And there's so much more to this poem. I uh, I, I share Tolkien's fascination with the metrical form of the Middle English poem Pearl. Um, it's one of my favorite poems of the Middle Ages, and uh, it is a fascinating... It, it's knowing Pearl and knowing Tolkien, it's no surprise that uh, he was fascinated by this. The, uh, the poem Pearl contains the... I, Think, I can't think of any other examples, the most intricate uh, verse form of any poem that I know uh, in the Middle Ages. The Divine Comedy is really complex. Well, no, it's not exactly complex. It's very demanding. It's very challenging. It's a, it's a, the, the fact that Dante does what he does for as long as he does is absolutely astounding. But it's not as complicated. It's not as ornate. It's not as intricate. It's a simpler structure. Uh, hard to maintain. Really impressive to do. But still, uh, metrically speaking, a simpler structure than Pearl. Anyway. Um, uh, uh, Pearl is... Um, well, Curie see, it's interesting. Pearl is about uh, a father... A father's longing for his dead daughter. Um, it begins with the father visiting the grave of his dead child, um, who was quite young, like a toddler, when she died. And he, he, he falls asleep and has a dream um, on her 
you know, so he's like lying on her grave and he, he dreams um, and he dreams of, the, you know, so he, he enters this country and he meets uh, the Pearl as his daughter. Um, and uh, he comes he comes to a stream and he sees his daughter across the stream and they have a conversation. And in the end, he his longing to uh, to be reunited with his daughter is so great. She's telling him all these visions of heavenly things. And it's pretty cool. But he really wants to be with her. So he tries to jump across the stream in the end to join his daughter. And as soon as he sort of leaves the ground and and uh, tries to leap across the stream, which is not very large, um, he uh, he wakes up and finds himself back in our world. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a, a gorgeous poem, uh, a beautiful poem. And, um, anyway, but <clears throat> Tolkien loved the magical form in this, in this poem, you can see him, uh, self-consciously, um, uh, um, adopting the, the verse form there. But anyway, okay. What's this about, right? We see him at the end. He's, he's, he's been singing about the nameless land, right? He's been singing about, about Erisea, right? About Elvenholm, that lost land where the elves are, and we, we, we don't hear him speaking very directly about them, right? He talks about he talks about the land and the trees and the leaves. He talks about their hair and their dancing, right? Um, and then at the end, we, we, we come to these exclamations. Oh, shore beyond the shadowy sea. Oh, land forlorn where lost things are. Oh, mountains where no man may be. The solemn surges on the bar beyond the world's edge waft to me. Okay, so just think about those five lines at first. And notice that's the structure, by the way, right? The five lines. Um, then the next five lines, I dream I see a wayward star, then beacon tear. So we got ten lines here. Anyway, okay. Um, uh, uh, what do we see in those first five lines there? Um, now, one thing to remember, this was written and published independently, right? I'm not saying it's not relevant, obviously, to Erisea and Valinor or anything. I'm not saying to detach it. What I am saying is that this was designed to be read by people totally detached. Uh, This was, in fact, published as a freestanding poem by people who would have no reason to know uh, anything. So, like, Shadowy Sea, right? Capital S, capital S, is obviously a name. But that name wouldn't convey anything to anybody, right? It wouldn't be like, oh, yes, the shadow we see after Valinor is hidden. There's the, the shadow we see, right? Nobody knows that, right? Uh, so it's, I think it's part of the effect of the poem to be thinking about the, it's, it's a name. It's, it's clearly a thing, the shadow we see, capital S, capital S. And yet um, it's a really evocative idea, right? The, so the, 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 the sea that lies, it's not just that it's distant, right? There's a shadow that lies between uh, you know, the sea, the sea itself is shadowy, uh, that lies between us and that shore. Oh, land forlorn where lost things are, right? Um, the place which is itself lost and where lost things go, um, but which we can't get to. Oh, mountains where no man may be. The solemn surges on the bar beyond the world's edge waft to me. Notice that sort of three things there, right? First, a prohibition. Mountains where no man may be. Not mountains where no men are, right? But where no man may be. Men are forbidden to be there. It's not just lost, and we can't find it again. It's not just inaccessible, because so far away, it is lost to us. It has been taken from us, right? Um, The solemn surges, and I love the the use of the word bar there uh, in that fourth line. 
seems to emphasize that, right? We have been barred, right? It's it's a play on words, right? He, he doesn't mean bar. He's using the word bar as a noun, meaning like the bar that the waves are breaking on, right? But um, which again suggests this kind of like barrier reef around it to to emphasize that idea of separation. Like you couldn't sail there, even if you could get there, your ship would probably wreck on the way, right? Um, but but it's not just distance, right? The fifth line. Um, the, the solemn surges, so the waves breaking on the bar beyond the world's edge waft to me, right? So the, 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 the waves um, still, still come to us, right? The speaker of the poem is still being called, even though it's far away, even though it's banned, we're banned from it yet, um, he feels the calling of that thing. I dream I saw a wayward star then beacon towers in Gondabar more fair, where faint upon the sky, on hills imagineless and far, the lights of longing flare and die. He dreams, right? So he is connected to this through his dreams. Um, and he dreams of the wayward star. Again, we're like, it's Arendo, right? Who knows, right? I don't know who Arendo is, right? Um, but the idea, all we get is the image of the wayward star, Um which is, which is really tantalizing, right? The wayward star. So it's a star that breaks its pattern, right? That doesn't stay within the pattern of the stars and the heavens that go across, right? Um, so you see a wandering star, one star in the firmament, which is moving counter to and, and just in a different way than the rest of the stars around it are, right? Is that a dream then that holds out hope that maybe, maybe we can? get there. Maybe like, maybe you could be a son of Arendel, right? To use the Lost Tales phrase, right? And uh, maybe you could be one who, the, you know, of all of the, you know, everyone else might be sort of stuck in their constellations, but maybe you can dream that you would be a wandering star. Um, and that star is more fair than beacon towers in Gondabar, if you can believe that, right? I mean, it's a pretty high standard of beauty, right? The beacon towers in Gondabar. Wait, don't you know what Gondabar is, Right? Of course you don't know what Gondabar is. Nobody knows what Gondabar is. Nobody who's reading this poem knows what Gondabar is. We know what Gondabar is, right? Gondabar, of course, obviously, is one of the seven names of Gondolin. But, I mean, who, who knows that? Nobody knows that, right? But again, we have this name sort of dropped in there, um, uh, which sort of suggests, uh, suggests this lost place, right? This lost name. Uh, where faint upon the sky, on hills imagineless and far, the lights of longing flare and die. The lights of longing flare and die. So the longing, I mean, this whole bit at the end of the poem, really the whole poem, has been about longing, right? The longing of the speaker for this place, this land forlorn where lost things are, right? Um, is that a projection? It's unclear, right? Is that a like? It's lost to us, so you imagine that they're lost, right? Uh, you know, you're you're imagining that they're missing you as much as you're missing them, right? Um, um, or 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 not, right? Is there this actual separation that is mutually grieved, right? Not clear from that. Um, but anyway, okay. So the lights. Of, so, but 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 it's, but now we have the, the longing is embodied. Not just it's it's not just the longing of the speaker for that land, right? In that land, there the lights of longing. Right, as if like that that thing which attracts longing. Remember we have the beacon towers, right? So you got towers which which have beacons which are sending signals to us, 
right? Like maybe like like lighthouses, right? To guide us in. That's what lighthouses are supposed to do, right? Guide you past like bars in the in the bay, which you know, so that you don't wreck your ship and and you can in fact come safely into harbor, right? So are the lights of longing? If we're the wandering star, right? In our dreams, right? If we're the wandering star, um, and we're remembering the beacon towers, um, are the lights of longing then sort of drawing us in? to harbor in this land forlorn in the shadowy sea, right? In the nameless land. Um, really ironic, Tolkien calling anything nameless, especially something that he gave quite as many names as he did this. But anyway, um, but they flare and die, right? In the dream, apparently, right? Those last five lines seem to describe a dream. So in his dream, he sees a wayward star. That seems hopeful. But then the lights of longing flare and die. Hope, hope dies, you can't actually get there, right? So the the last line ultimately is discouraging, right? It's not going to happen. You're not going to get there, right? Um, You might have a dream in which you almost get there, or seem like you're maybe invited there, but it's not going to happen, right? Okay, so again, this poem early, 1924, right? 1924, what's Tolkien up to? Ah, Tolkien's writing the children, the alliterative children of Hurin, right? Maybe thinking about uh, experiencing his uh, uh, Baron and Luthien temptation, right? Thinking about taking up the uh, the Lay of Lathian, right? Where the Hobbit is still not thought of yet. He's not come back to the uh, Lost Tales, and so he's abandoned the Lost Tales, but he hasn't started the Quintus stuff uh, that he starts up again in 1930. Um, but he's writing a lot of poetry in the 20s, some of it kind of silly poetry. The Man in the Moon poems, like the poem that Frodo uh, sings in the In It Brie, was originally written, in the first draft of it anyway, the first version of it, written in this period. Uh, So he's he's writing a bunch of wild, crazy, silly songs. The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, speaking of silly, uh, comes from this period as well. But we're getting this poem of longing for the Western land poem of longing for Erisea and for Valinor. So this pre- way predates the Numenorean stuff, like we're a decade before the fall of Numenor and the Lost Road. So what's the point? Why do I bring this up? What does that tell us about the theme of this book that he hasn't written, right? Or that he didn't finish. Um, well, my point is, he chooses this poem, right? He comes back to this, but he's written a whole bunch of poetry by this time, as those of you who took my Tolkien's poetry class uh, in our Tolkien studies concentration at Signum, um, those of you who took that class will remember he wrote a lot of poems earlier, you know, in, in this early part of his life. And um, he chose this one, right? He goes back to this one. And he integrates it. Um, we can see Christopher gives us the revisions of this poem when it is put into the mouth, mouth of Alfwina, the Anglo-Saxon, right? Um, who is going to be the Alboin character of uh, uh, in the first jump, right? The first chronological jump that Alboin makes. Um, so, therefore, it's obviously relevant, right? He looking back says, "Okay, this poem. I want to take. I, I want to take this. I, I want to incorporate this poem into the story." So clearly, this poem shows us something about what Tolkien was thinking of. So we start with this longing, the longing for the West, and that turns out to be a running motif in these other fragments that we see him 
pulling out and pulling together. And I would emphasize these other fragments. I want to talk about the uh, the Galdor, the Agaldor uh, fragment that Christopher gives us. Um, this seems to be the uh, Beleriandic pre-Ice Age thing um, that we were getting. Remember, Agaldor was the name originally given before it was changed to Amroth in the first outline. Um, Agaldor was the hero of the very, very first version of the uh, uh, of the Last Alliance. <clears throat> he was the one who first wrestled with Thu, but his name was immediately changed from Agaldor to Emroth. Um, but that seems to be the, again, so I, I, I take it that this Agaldor fragment is meant to be that uh, sort of a, a, a snippet of that post-Numenor but um, Beleriandic thing before we get to the Ice Age, right? Afterwards, or before, you know, as we're going backwards in time. Um, so so what do we get here? Now, keep in mind what we're reading, right? This is a fragment, not that it's like the whole, he wrote the Agaldor story and this is all that remains, right? No, this, this, this came out, right? What, we, what Christopher Tolkien says exists in these papers is a bunch of notes and sketches, right? He's, uh, he's just jotting down ideas. And this seemed to be, this, uh, this seems to be how ideas come to Tolkien, right? As he's sketching through ideas, a particular scene, a particular moment kind of comes, and he writes it down, right? And so we get this bit of narrative, right, about Agaldor, and it is the only thing that we have of this story, which suggests, again, this shows where he's starting from. I, to me, those little moments, these little fragments that emerge are really, really rich because they show us where was Tolkien's mind at the beginning, right? Um, when he says, when he tosses off the Galdor story in the earlier uh, outline, um, or the Agaldor story as it's becoming here, what is that about? Well, this seems to be the central idea because this is the thing that he uh, sketched out in more detail. There goes Agaldor again from his speech with the sea, earlier than usual, said one. He has been haunting the shores more than ever of late. He will be giving tongue soon, and prophesying strange things, said another. And may the lords of the West set words more comforting in his mouth than before. The lords of the West will tell him not, said a third. If ever they were on land or sea, they have left this earth, and man is his own master from here to the sunrise. Why should we be plagued with the dreams of a twilight, twilight walker? His head is stuffed with them, and there let them, ab- let them bide. One would think to hear him talk that the world has ended in the last age, not new begun, and we were living in the ruins. Notice the connection here between the conversation between, you know, with this and the conversation between Alboin and his dad back in chapter one, right, about what is the past really like. We have that refiguring of the world here, right? No, no, no. This is not the falling, right? This is not, rather, this is not the fallout of the fall of Numenor. Um, we're not living in the ruins of the great old world. Um, we're living, uh, uh, we're getting in on the ground floor of the new world, right? So we can see these two different perspectives being articulated here. Um, I love the, the fact that what Tolkien is jotting down here is a bunch of dialogue, right, from different people. So we don't hear from a Galdor much here, right? But we do get different perspectives on who Agaldor is and what it is, what's significance about him, what's significant about him. So what do we see? We see a post-Numenorian guy who is a seer, who's a prophet in some sense, right? He has visions. Some people believe that they're given to him by the Lords of the West. Um, others are very skeptical of that. Um, and what he has to tell them is not comforting, 
right? Uh, and um, uh, so, man, he's hanging. He's always hanging out by the sea, right? D- is this going to lead towards the last alliance, right? Is the uh, is is one of the non-comforting messages sent to Agaldor by the Lords of the West the fact that Thu is arising and that Agaldor has a wrestling match scheduled with him in the future? Maybe, right? Maybe that's in fact where it's going to be headed, but we don't know for sure. Um, in any case, what do we get? Well, again, we get the, the, the warring of these different perspectives, right? But we also get a Geldor sitting by the shores of the Western Sea, right? Um, and living his life westward, but fruitlessly, almost helplessly, trying to regain contact with the past, something out of the past with the West, which has lost, or which has been lost. And if this is our penultimate stop on our historical, our backwards historical tour, right, if this is the one that comes right before Numenor, which is what that outline uh, suggested, then uh, um, we uh, we have um, a setup for the fall of Numenor in a Galdor's longing backwards towards Numenor and beyond towards the past. Think about how this serves as a kind of a foil for Alboin's desire for the past, right? Alboin desires to go back and to hear old cultures speak and to experience and see what they were really like. Um, are we being shown that that desire, that love of the past and that desire uh, to find past things is only an elbow and a very distant echo of the desire for Numenor is the loss of Numenor, right? Um, something which still has its echoes in Alboin's own desire of the past, desire for the past. Notice also that trend of messages from the past. Alboin is getting the messages, right? These things are coming through to him. Things seem to be coming through to a Galdor as well. So again, that sort of prophetic element is another major trend that we see going through here. Um, but, uh, okay, so again, we don't know where the Agaldor story is going to lead. Uh, and, of course, again, as we see in other instances, as Tolkien writes stories, they often tend to develop and end up somewhere quite different uh, from where they began. In fact, every story, pretty much, almost every story that he wrote, certainly every long story that he wrote, uh, ends up that way. Um, you can see it in the Lord of the Rings. You can see it in the Hobbit, right? Uh, itself. So, um, where would the Galdor story end up? Don't really know for sure, but we can kind of see where it begins, right? Um, and uh, and again, it, we, we've got that we've got that westward orientation, uh, really, really firmly, and that longing and desire of a Galdor for the past, um, but that past also driving him, perhaps towards a future in which he actually accomplishes something, like uh, wrestling Sauron to death. Um, Okay, moving backwards, forwards, anyway, to a different time, right, to the Anglo-Saxon stuff, which would have been chapter three in the new version, right? Alfwina's desire. The desire of my spirit urges me to journey forth over the flowing sea, that far hence across the hills of water and the whale's country I may seek the land of strangers. This, of course, is the modern English translation of the poem that he says. Right? No mind have I for harp, nor gift of ring, nor delight in women, nor joy in the world, nor concern with aught else save the rolling of the waves. Then he stopped suddenly. There was some laughter and a few jeers, 
though many were silent, as if feeling that the words were not spoken to their ears, old and familiar as they were, words of the old poets, who most men had heard often. Notice what we see there? Just like those multiple fragments of dialogue, right, about Agaldor, we see the different perspectives, right? So the warring points of view, people who look at the world one way, people who look at the world the other way, right? Um, some are laughing and jeering at him. What? You know, you don't want uh, you don't want harps, rings, women, joy in the world, right? All the things that we value, kind of in order, right? Um, you don't want you, you don't want any of those things, right? Okay, right. So we've got people scoffing and laughing at him for that. But the other perspective is not people who feel the same way, but people who recognize that there's something else going on here, right? Who, on the one hand, acknowledge these are the words of the old poets right? We've heard this kind of thing before, but we've never really paid attention to it. And it, he seems to be not talking to us, right? There's, there's, there's something else. The worlds are not spoken, words are not spoken to our ears, right? That's a really interesting construction there. Um, we're not the intended audience. This is, there's some other transaction going on here. This, again, this perception of sort of otherness about what's going on with Alfwina here, right? Okay. If he has no mind to the harp, he need expect no wages, said one. He's a bard, after all. Is there a mortal here who has, who has a mind? We have had enough of the sea, said another. A spell of Dane hunting would cure most men's love of it. Let him go rolling on the waves, said another. It is, no, it is no great sail to the Welsh country, where folk are strange enough, and the Danes to talk to as well. Once again, we get these, the worldly perspective, right? The scoffers, like we got with a Galdor. But now notice the differences. The differences between Alfwina's desire, which he's articulating in his poem here, and a Galdor's perspective, which we didn't really get that much of uh, in the passage we were looking at before. But again, the, the, the emphasis there was on prophecy. The word prophecy was being used, right? That is, the people around him acknowledged that he was getting messages from the Lords of the West. Some of them were skeptical that they were really messages of the Lord. But still, it's like, is he a real prophet or is he a fake prophet, right? No, they're not really thinking that with Alfwina. With him, it's like, hmm, maybe he's a prophet or maybe he's just a complete idiot, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're making fun of him there at the end. Many of them making fun of him there at the end. Um, but what is the content of his poem? The desire of my spirit urges me to journey forth over the flowing sea. Again, that longing. Um, it's all about the sea voyages, right? That's why I called this class Imrama, uh, which means sea voyages. You know, the tradition of the poems about sea voyages, like the voyages of St. Brendan and things. Um, Tolkien wrote a poem called Imram, uh, as Christopher explains. Um, we won't get to that for some time, even if we continue steadily through the history of Middle-earth, as it doesn't come in until volume 9, Sauron def- five, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, yeah, 9, <laughs> Sauron defeated, um, when we get the Notion Club papers and come back to the Lost Road stuff. Or rather... Tolkien returns to the Lost Road stuff um, after he writes The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but anyhow, um, that's still in Tolkien's future and our future. Um, but anyway, so th- that idea of the the poems about the recollections of sea voyages, especially sea voyages off, uh, you know, from Europe off into the West, into the mysterious West. And that really seems to be the whole heart of the Lost Road story, I would say. Um, ultimately, I think you could kind of call the entire Lost Road and Imram, basically. I mean, you know, that's kind of facile, but whatever. 
hope you see what I mean by that. So, okay, so Alphuna's desire, his spirit urges him to journey forth. Now, we didn't get that so clearly with the Agaldor story, right? But again, we have, you know, the longing, the desire, right? But he wants to go, right? He wants to have concern with nothing else save the rolling of the waves, right? Um, he, uh, he wants to, um, uh, he wants to, to go. He doesn't just want to remember it, right? He's not just transmitting messages from it. Um, he wants to find it. He wants to seek the straight road, right? The lost road. That's what the lost road is, of course, right? Um, I, I'm so simple-minded. I've read this several times before I even ask myself the question, what is the lost road, right? Like, what What's the lost road in question? Of course, it's the straight road, right? I, 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 I can be really dense. Um, uh, but yeah, that's ultimately, that's that's the, the point, right? Um, is the seeking for the straight road. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um Yes, Carolyn, the hills of water in the whales' country. Um, it, it, it is a wonderful image of, of huge waves, and yeah, the ocean is, uh, is the, whales, the whales' country. Uh, you refer to the whales' road in Beowulf. Um, Tolkien would, be, would very quickly and harshly tell you there is no whales' road in Beowulf. Um, that's his translation of that phrase, that, that, the walrad. The, the, the um, he believed road was a terrible translation of that word. Uh, it's not the whale's road, it's the whale's country. It's referring to like the the land the land that they're on. Um or you know the their their domain basically. Um in fact, he has a really comical he goes on a really comical um rant about that mistranslation actually in uh in his uh, in the Beowulf that was uh, published by Christopher Tolkien just a couple years ago. It's really fun. One of my favorite moments from that book, actually. Okay, so more. More about... Um, uh, uh, no, not, not more about Athlina. Now, I want to go back even further. Let's go back to chapter... The original chapter three. Back to the Numenor stuff. Back to Elendil. And, um, uh, and see what we find there. Um, this is at the very beginning, before he begins his conversation with Herendil, his son. Mariners in the old days said that the scent of Lavaralda could be felt on the air long ere the land of Arisea could be seen, and that it brought a desire of rest and great content. He had seen the trees in flower day after day, for they rested from flowering only at rare intervals. But now, suddenly, as he passed, the scent struck him with a keen fragrance, at once known and utterly strange. He seemed for a moment never to have smelled it before. It pierced the troubles of his mind, bewildering, bringing no familiar content, but a new disquiet. Erisea, Erisea, he said, I wish I were there, and had not been fated to dwell in Numenor, halfway between the worlds, and least of all in these days of perplexity. When we go back to the beginning, what do we find? Same thing, right? Westward longing, right? Um, we might have a Galdor longing for Numenor and Elvenholm beyond here. In Numenor, what do we find? Him longing for Erisea, right? Him longing for Elvenholm. Um, and no, I, I wish that I had not been fated 
to dwell in Numenor, halfway between the worlds, right? Um, and I, lo I love that that image of Numenor, Numenor halfway between the worlds, is fascinating to me. Again, as a glimpse of like what Numenor meant to Tolkien, at this when he's like when the Numenor story is is new hatched, right? Um, what does it mean to him? It's 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 the world between the worlds, right? The island between the worlds, Middle Earth, Valinor, Toerasea, right? Even before the bending of the world, right? Even before the removal and the straight road and everything, um, Numenor is still this halfway country, um, which doesn't satisfy content, but instead brings a new disquiet. The very closeness, the the scent that he is smelling are flowers that were brought from Arisea, right? So, I mean, you've got here so much more. I mean, imagine the, imagine what the, what the speaker of the Nameless Land poem would have given for, like, a bunch of flowers that actually came from Elvenholm, right? He talks a lot about flowers and leaves and things from Elvenholm, right? What if he had some of them growing in his garden, brought straight from Arisea by the elves, right? Wow! Right? But to be so closely connected, to have that kind of link, I mean, wow, right? What's Elendil's reaction to that to that circumstance? No con familiar content, but a new disquiet. Right, still the unfulfilled longing uh, that remains. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Tom Hillman says it's like the world has fallen out from beneath it, but Numenor remains poised on the point of falling. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. James Leback says, I love in this passage we see the time traveler's perspective break through as if he'd never smelled it before. Good, James. We do get hints of that. Um, the overlay of the Alboin and the Elendil points of view, right? Yes. Good, James. Um, we get it more strongly later on, but we do get it here, there, too, I think. Okay, so even in the Numenor story, the original story. So what was originally going to be, what, what was always going to be the end of the story, but what was it going to be the first jump and then it was going to be the last jump depending on, uh, you know, where in the development of the concept we were in Tolkien's mind. But um, back in the original chapter three and four that he wrote, we can see this idea of longing central there. But of course, it's not just Elendil's longing. It's not just this longing for Tol Arisea. Um, it's part of the big story, right? Because, of course, that longing is being perverted um, as the Numenorians are falling, right? They say now that the tale was altered by the Arisaeans, this is Herendel, right? Who are, who are slaves of the lords, that in truth Arendel was an adventurer and showed us the way, and that the lords took him captive for that reason, and his work was perforce unfinished. Therefore the son of Arendel, our king, should complete it. They wish to do what, what has been long left undone. What is that? Thou knowest, to set foot in the far west, and not withdraw it, to conquer new realms for our race, and ease the pressure of this peopled land, where every road is trodden hard, and every tree and grass blade counted, to be free and masters of the world, to escape the shadow of sameness and of ending. We would make our king lord of the west, Nuaran Numenoren. Death comes here slow and seldom, yet it cometh. The land is only a cage gilded to look like paradise. Um, it's really interesting that Herendil is made the mouthpiece of 
he's he's the one who's articulating Sauron's lines, right? I mean, he's getting all this ultimately from Sauron in Numenor. Um, notice how this is perverted. Yana, I totally agree. It's fascinating to, you know, uh, Yana says to actually hear this argument rather than hearing only the side of the faithful. Yeah, Yana, we, the, the closest we get in the Akalabeth is that debate um, about death in the Undying Lands right, right before they start turning away. Um, but that's only a glimpse, right? We never, and that's long before Sauron comes, right? To actually see the lies of Sauron taking root and what they look like. And of course, what do they look like? They look like that longing, the longing that even Elendil, the elf friend, feels. Um, that longing twisted, right? Perverted. That desire for the to set foot in the far west, right? To follow in the feet of Eärendil, yes. But we're going to twist it around, right? We're imagining now that Eärendil has been... And the, fact, the thing is, the facts of the case will support that interpretation. I mean, after all, Eärendil disappeared into the West and was not permitted to return. He's been held captive, right? He was punished. He was banned. You know, that story has legs. That's very clever, right? You can totally see how that could work. Notice what the longing how the longing manifests itself, manifests itself, right? Desire for power, yes. Conquer new realms for our race, right? Ease the pressure of this peopled island, right? Where every road is trodden hard and every tree and grass blade counted. This world is same. This land that we, you know, it's not, it's not just that it's not enough. It's, uh, we're not content, we're not content with this world that we have, with this island that we have. But a lack of content is, I mean, to what extent is the longing, all the longings, the longings from the poem, Al, Al, uh, Agaldor's longing, you know, Alfwina's longing, how much is all of that connected to lack of content, right? Is that just merely a sign, another expression of being not content with this world? Because there's a fine line, right? A fine line between feeling a longing for that paradisal fairy, which is beyond capital F fairy, right? Uh, which is beyond mortal reach. A fine line between feeling that desire and indulging that longing and being discontented with the world that you have, right? Looking about and find every road trodden hard and every tree and grass blade counted, right? Um, you might find only the... find that you could only that you believe that you can only be free in the fulfillment of that longing and that to remain where you are is to be enslaved, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, both Margaret and Cecilia are thinking about Feanor and the gnomes, right? Feanor and the Noldor. Um, and, of course, going in the other direction, right? This, we are we are cooped in a narrow place, right? As Feanor says in the published Silmarillion. Um, but that parallel, or sort of, again, anti-parallel, right? Margaret and Cecilia, um, kind of points to the underlying problem, right? Um, even if you're over in paradise, I mean, if you can't be content where you are, you're not going to be content in paradise either, right? Just ask Feanor, right? So, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think we can see that. 
But again, it's different. The difference between that story as we hear it when we get it with Noldor and with Feanor, and that story as we get it in Numenor, is we don't have that same longing, right? We get the ambition, we get the pride, we get the uh, the desire to sort of you know achieve things and rule things, and the lack of content with the world that you're in. But we don't get that longing for the unattainable, that desire for paradise, right? Um, the desire for paradise makes no part of the plans of the Noldor to return to Middle-earth. Um, but of course, behind this, in turn, is yet another and deeper longing, right? It's not just longing for the West. Wherefore the dominion of the world is ours, or shall be, from Erisea to the east. More can no mortals have, says Elendil, when he's trying to set his, uh, his son straight. Save to escape from death, said Herendil, lifting his face to his father's, and from sameness. They say that Valinor, where the lords dwell, has no further bounds. They say not truly, for all things in the world have an end, since the world itself is bounded, that it may not be void. But death is not decreed by the lords. It is a gift of the one, and a gift which in the wearing of time even the lords of the west shall envy. So the wise of old have said. And though we can perhaps no longer understand that word, at least we have wisdom enough to know that we cannot escape, unless to a worse fate. Okay, yes. Yes, Carita. Death and sameness. Right? Um... What do they have in common, as Herendel articulates that, Carita? Infinity, right? It's finitude that the Numenoreans are rebelling against. A finite life span, right? We want immortality. We want never-ending life. And lack of boundaries. We want boundless dominion, right? But not just dominion in the sense of infinite power. I mean, yeah, that's obviously part of it, but, 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 but sameness, right? Um, we never want to be able to count the blades of grass, right? Um, we want infinity. That's what we want. Um, Elendil says, be content. Right. And yeah, Nancy, the argument, uh, Nancy points out that the argument that the world needs to be bounded to be a thing, right? Not to be void. Uh, uh, so that the, so that infinity is the same as nothingness. Yeah, it's a fascinating counter, isn't it, Nancy? Um, what you're wanting is not only impossible, son, says Oendo, right? It's not just that, but it's not even desirable, right? We can't have infinity. We're not meant for infinity. And he's saying, you're, you're mistaken, right? Um, there's, there's, uh, yeah, James, the desire for the void. It, think back to Melkor and Melkor going wrong in the first place. Yeah, we can see the parallels. Um, but, I mean, they're worshiping Melkor after all, right? But, um, but more. Okay. The fallacy of their thinking. Um, all things are bounded. Not even the not even the, the they say not truly, he says, right? Um, the Valinor is not boundless. It has bounds. And I think Elendo is implying 
it's not just that it has, um, when he says all things in the world have an end, notice how that sentence embraces both time and space, right? Everything has a bound that it be not void. Geographically, it has a bound, right? There are boundaries of the world. Um, but there's also boundaries in time. There's also an end, a beginning and an end to the world, or else it would be void, right? Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, this is, uh, this is, uh, uh, his rebuttal. So his rebuttal is ultimately contentment, but it's not even contentment. He's not just saying like, well, you know, but come on now, Numenor is real nice, right? Let's just be happy here. That, that's, that's not where he goes. What he says is what you want can't happen. The bounds have been set, not by the Lords of the West, but by the One, right? By Iluvatar himself. Um, death is not decreed by the Lords, it's a gift of the One. Um, in what sense is it a gift? Notice that here Tolkien gives us another way of understanding death as the gift of Iluvatar, right? Um, it places bounds on human lives that they may not be void, right? Um, boundaries definition is a good thing, in fact. Um, the Valar themselves are bounded. Uh, exactly, Margaret. Yes. Um, but this is how death is a good thing. And, he, and Lundo admits we don't really understand, we can't understand that anymore. We, then, we don't understand how death is the gift. Um, but at least we have wisdom to know that we can't escape, right? The idea that we can escape from death is folly. Complete folly, right? Um, we're simply deluding ourselves, as indeed, of course, the king of Numenor, under the guidance of Sauron, is going de to be deluding himself, right? The whole attack on Valinor is a delusion, ultimately, um, founded upon the fundamental delusion that they can escape uh, even from their own death. But again, all of this has its root, in longing, right? The longing for the West, the longing for life, the longing for, you know, to escape, the, the, to seeing death as a loss, right? And wanting to, to have that thing. Or is it perhaps that maybe the longing for the West itself is only an image that they're not understanding? that death is also a gift in that when men die, they go they know not whither, right? And that even the longing that they have for Erisea <clears throat> and for Valinor beyond that is itself only an image or an echo or a shadow of the longing that they have for that place, their true home, whither they go beyond the circles of the world. Um, that that may be here too. It seems to me possible that that's one of the things that we kind of can see or hear beyond or behind um, Elendil's comments here. But, okay, so really interesting. So again, now thinking about this back to the big picture, right? Lost Road. We can see the, the different shades, the different manifestations of this. So we've got the, the idea of the longing, which was embedded from the very beginning, right? In Albuin's longing for the past and seeing how that 
story of longing goes on from from Albuin to Alfwina, right, and his longing for the sea and for sailing upon the sea and going back across the sea to the places where you can't go anymore. And then uh, you've got uh, 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 a Galdor, right, and his looking westward and receiving messages and his longing um, and his uh, his his unquiet or disquieting uh, communications that he's receiving. Um, but again, his, his looking back towards Numenor, and then we get Elendo and his longing and the longing of the Numenorians and how ev- all of that longing and desire kind of comes together in ultimately the fall of Numenor itself and the escape from the fall of Numenor, presumably by Elendo and his son Herendel, who presumably are going to end up in Middle-earth um, founding, you know, Gondor. Um, and Arnor. So, anyway, okay, so that, I would say, that seems to me, in the based on what we can see here in this early conception, that seems to be the big central theme of the book. Um, and as you can see, I'm not doing too badly, but I'm not doing too well either in uh, getting through towards King Sheev. Um, so let me do the last bits before we get to King Sheev, uh, which I'm going to prophesy that we're going to have to save till next time. Um, so let's look at more on the Numenorean drama, because it's not just about the longing, right? There's more to it than that. Since we get these fully written chapters, or mostly written chapters anyway, um, uh, of the Numenorean material, we can see more in this story, and I'm particularly interested in the father-son story, right? Because we get that with Albuin and Alduin at the beginning. Um, remember the, 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 the conflict and the connection between them. We get it between Albuin and his dad, and um, you know both the connection and the disconnection between them. And we see it again even more strongly between Albuin and Alduin, uh, this this connection between them, how the two of them are meant to complement each other, right? One is the ears and one is the eyes. Um, and yet we see the conflict and the, the, the gap that still exists between them. And so we get this, um, the framework that the story seems to establish for the story of, of Albuin and Alduin is one which has both internal conflict and external conflict. I mean internal and external to their relationship. That is, we get the internal drama, right, of Albuin and Alduin, and are they going to bring it together, and are they going to come together? We can tell that that um, is a big issue, right? The question of, like, are the two of them going to hold together? Are they going to remain together? Are they going to stand together? Are they going to lose each other? That's one of the big dramas, it seems, of the whole Lost Road story. We can see it in how Albuin and Alduin are, are... parting, right, are, are drifting apart there at the very end of chapter two. We can see it even more forcibly with the drama of Elendo and Herendo, right? What choice is, is, is Herendo going to make? Um, but then, of course, we also have the external drama that is the two of them versus the outer world. And that, of course, comes through most clearly in the Numenor story with, uh, uh, you know, and of course the choice that we see in the final words of the written Numenorian chapters uh, when Herendel chooses uh, his father uh, and to ally himself with his father and to leave behind the teachings of Sauron, which he seems to have been quite convinced by earlier on. Um, So now we have this situation established there as far as the story went of Elendil and Herendil together against the world, right? Uh, And sure to be persecuted by Sauron and his followers who presumably have 
who apparently, that is to say, have spies, uh, you know, in every household and are always listening and they can't even in private be sure um, that they won't be hurt and persecuted. Um, so let's look at the setup for this a little bit more. Um, again, how this father-son drama was seems prepared to, to, to be played out in this story. Um, so let's look at the setup that we get in the Numenorean chapters. Um, remember, if The Lost Road is published, it will be the first of the Silmarillion things published. So we have no context. So we need to be... So that's why we get these explanations, right? So we get the song uh, that Furiel is singing. And uh, um, what this amounts to, right? What she's singing is like almost like a kind of creed, right? So this is the Numenorean creed. This is the old creed of the faithful. The Father made the world for elves and mortals, and he gave it into the hands of the lords. They are in the West. They are holy blessed and beloved. Save the Dark One. He is fallen. Melko has gone from the earth. It is good. For elves they made the moon, but for men the red sun, which are beautiful. To all they gave in measure the gifts of Iluvatar. The world is fair, the sky, the seas, the earth, and all that is in them. Lovely is Numenor, but my heart resteth not here forever, for here is ending, and there will be an end and the fading, when all is counted and all numbered at last, but yet it will not be enough, not enough. What will the Father, O Father, give me in that day, beyond the end, when my son faileth? Love the song, right? Um, yeah, Nancy, this is a song she shouldn't sing out a window, right? Herendel's like, she is going to get in trouble singing that stuff aloud, right? Um, absolutely. So, a lot of the like basic doctrine of this creed is known to us, right? The father, right? Uh, Iluvatar making the world, and the delegation to the Valar, and the bad one, right? Melko is fallen, and he's gone, and that's thumbs up on Melko being gone. That's a good thing. Um, the correlation of moon and sun to elves and men, much more um, strongly, and that, that survives in the published Silmarillion, right? But we don't... Uh, um, uh, we don't uh, see it quite as explicitly as that, like that that the sun and the moon are designed for the elves and men, respectively, by Iluvatar. Um, uh, okay, everything is everything is lovely. Numenor is lovely, but now look at the the longing stuff, right? Um, uh, and Carson, you're right. Carson points out that you know the creed discusses the bounds set into place. There will be an end, right? Um, and that's good. Two, right? Um, my heart resteth not here forever. So notice, what's the cure of of the longing, which is the perverted longing, the twisted longing, which is overcoming the Numenorians, that desire for infinity that we were talking about before? What's the antidote to that? Not contentment, right? It's not like, hey, you've got your Numenor, now you just enjoy Numenor. Okay, would you please just focus on what's around you? Live in the moment, people, right? Uh, carpe diem, that's not the counter, right? The counter to the longing is not carpe diem. It is recognition that my heart resteth not here forever, right? For here is ending. Yeah, we should be discontent with ending. Yes, we should be discontent with sameness. It's, this isn't our home, right? 
This isn't where we're meant to be forever, because here is ending, and there will be a fading. When all is counted and all is numbered at last, so there's going to be the end in time, right? We have the bounds of the world in time as well as space. Um, but when all is numbered and counted, it won't be enough, right? This world isn't enough, shouldn't be enough to content us. What will the Father, O oh Father, give me in that day beyond the end when my son faileth? Furiel, the singer of the song, doesn't know the answer to this question, right? What will come? But notice, even the crying out to Iluvatar and asking him this question suggests that there is an answer, even if the answer is not revealed to us. We don't know what the answer is, right? But there is the implication that something is going to be given to us in that day, beyond the end, when the sun fails us. Um... Yeah, Veronica, there does seem to be an acceptance of death and accept- because something is going to be given to us in another place. Um, maybe that desire for infinity will indeed be satisfied, but not here, right? Um, and yeah, so James Lebach points out that even the creed holds the seeds of discontent, of the discontent that Sauron leverages. Yes, yes, or at least, James, I would say the potential for the discontent, right? Um, we can see... The creed contains an acknowledgement of that whole, right? Uh, an acknowledgement of the uh, H-O-L-E, right? That, that spot, that, that, that empty place, right? That longing, um, that desire, that unfulfilled desire. The fact that living in this world, it's great, right? The world is fair and Numenor is lovely, but it doesn't fully do it for us, right? We still all have that longing. We still want more. And that's not a bad thing. That's an okay thing. But uh, it can lead us wrong, as indeed Sauron is leading them wrong. Um, And yes, Josiah, the parallel between Melko as fallen, the use of the word fallen there as an anticipation of the fall of Numenor, yeah, very important, I agree. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, good, good. uh, yeah, Mick, that is really interesting. Mick says an answer may not be uh, uh, may may not satisfy men, just as many other proclamations of truth uh, are ignored. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, okay, uh, more on the so so. Okay, so within this, the uh, conflict. I was going that internal external conflict that we I was talking about with the father son thing. Um, Herendo has just said, like, like they might hear, right? They might do something. Who are they, and what might they do? said Elendil. But a chill fear passed from his son's eyes to his own heart. Do not ask, and do not speak so loud. Herendil turned away and lay prone with his face buried in his hands. Thou knowest it is dangerous to us all. Whatever he be, Sauron is mighty and hath ears. I fear the dungeons, and I love thee, I love thee. Atarinya tia melane. Atarinya tia melane. My father, I love thee. The words sounded strange, but sweet. They smote Elendil's heart. Ayanya inye tia mela. And I too, my son, love thee, he said. I too, my son, I love thee, he said, feeling each syllable strange, but vivid as he spoke it. Okay, so we see here again 
the drama. I, I, I just I quote this for several reasons. Uh, one, again, we can see here a glimpse into those that the external and internal drama that which is clearly going to be the conflict that's going to drive this whole Lost Road plot through all of the different incarnations, right? We're going to get uh, the pressure from outside, right? And uh, here we have the first uh, and uh, a really touching instance of Herendel and Elendil coming together and holding together against the threat from outside. But of course, we do see Herendel does have to kind of cross a distance to get there, right? Um, but of course, we also see this echo of... Um, this echo of Alboin, right? Once again, um, uh, uh, who was it who a while back, one of you was talking about, James, was it James? Um, how we could see in the the smelling of the flowers, right? This sense of both the, fami- you know, Elendil's familiarity with this, but also the strangeness, right? Because we have this sort of, uh, what appears to be a kind of imperfect superimposition, of Alboin's consciousness upon Elendil's consciousness in this time travel journey that they are... Because remember, Elendil tells Alboin at the end of chapter two, um, you're not just going to see it from outside, right? You're going to walk through it. You're going to live it. Um, So we have this kind of juxtaposition, not juxtaposition, superimposition of Alboin and Elendil. They are one and yet not perfectly one. Um, and we can hear that uh, this is the, the, the moment where we can see that most clearly, um, where um, Elendo is speaking to his son in his native tongue, right? But the native tongue sounds strange but sweet, right? His own heart is smitten by the sweetness of his own language, right? Um, because it's, it's, it, that's clearly an Alboin moment, right? When he is uh, uh, hearing them speak to each other in this deeply personal uh beautiful and tender moment and he is struck by the beauty of hearing that here's Albuin's desire fulfilled right to uh, uh, to hear people in the past speaking in their own language and to see their culture and what's going on um, so we get that sort of layer going on too which is I think really really cool and then again the relationship between Albuin's longing and desire and Oendel's longing and desire uh, so much really cool stuff uh, more. Okay, so uh, so there's this shadow. More on this external threat. Um, how can you tell when your land is falling under the shadow? There is a shadow, but it is the shadow of the fear of death and the shadow of greed. But there is also a shadow of darker evil. We are no, we no longer see our king. His displeasure falleth on men, and they go out. They are in the evening. They are they are in the evening, and in the morning they are not. The open is insecure. Walls are dangerous. Even by the heart of the house spies may sit. And there are prisons and chambers underground. There are torments and there are evil rites. The woods at night that once were fair, men would roam and sleep there for delight when thou wert a babe, are filled now with horror. Even our gardens are not wholly clean after the sun has fallen. And now even by day smoke riseth from the temple. Flowers and grass are withered where it falleth. The old songs are forgotten or altered, twisted into other meanings. Yea, that one learneth day by day, said Herendel, but some of the new songs are strong and heartening. Yet now I fear that some counsel us to abandon the old tongue. They say we should leave Arisaean and revive the ancestral speech of men. Sauron teacheth it. In this at least I think he doth not well. I love the fact that, like, 
if there's one thing that gets through to the youth of today, right, you might not be able to convince them that, like, their flashy new friends are really leading them down a, 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 a dark and dangerous path, right? They probably won't listen to you when you say that. But the one thing that really gets through to him is that this idea of abandoning the old language is clearly evil, right? Uh, uh, I mean, if, the, if there's one objective sign of Sauron's evil, it's that he's, uh, he's trying to mess up the language, that's really where you where you hit you know teenagers where they live, right? I just I I I love that, right? This is uh, uh you know this is the sort of the uh, um the Tolkienian uh, uh um fantasy version, right? Um exactly, Arthur. Uh, language is what counts in in Tolkien's word. Uh, absolutely. Um. So we see his, you know, the, the evidence of the the shadow falling and the evil creeping, um, and uh, and again, so this sort of picture of that outside world, and again, notice how um, the emphasis here is on like the need to come together and how 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 sort of the the threat is coming in. Um, really, uh, really love that, and I just love Herendel's comment there at the end. I'm rushing now, of course, because we're coming to the end of class. Um, Climax, climaxing, of course, in uh, the 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 um, the Numenor story, climaxing in Herendel's choice. I am a leader, my son. No, I am a leader, my son, and I have counted the peril both for myself and for thee, all, and all whom I love. I do what is right and my right to do, but I cannot conceal it longer from thee. Thou must choose between thy father and Sauron. But I give thee freedom of choice, and lay on thee no obedience as to a father, if I have not convinced thy mind and heart. Thou shalt be free to stay or go, yea, even to report as may seem good to thee all that I have said. But if thou stayest and learnest more, which will involve closer counsels and other names than mine, then thou wilt be bound in honour to hold thy peace, come what may. Wilt thou stay? Atarinya tia melane, said Herendil suddenly, and clasping his father's knees, he laid his head there and wept. I love the fact that the second time we get it, it's not translated for us, right? Because we remember, of course, or anyway, we should remember what it means. My father, I love thee, right? Um, notice the emphasis on choice, and notice the correspondence between this and yeah, Karita, isn't it beautiful, right? How loyalty and love can't be forced, right? He is not asserting his authority as father. That's what he means when he says, I lay on thee no obedience as to a father, right? I'm not saying do your duty, son, and stand by your father. He leaves it to go and go and go and report on me, right? Um, Go and go and tell Sauron and his followers all the 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 rebellion that I have already said, right? All the blasphemies against Sauron and Melkor that I have uttered. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but notice the correspondence between this and the end of chapter two. Remember when Elendil appears in the vision, that last vision that Alboin has, when Elendil shows up and says, hey, your wish is granted, you're going to get to travel in time, good luck to you, he emphasizes choice, right? You must choose. And he, Alboin, must choose for his son, right? Um, and you know, there's emphasis on how Alduin has to make his own choice, but he'll definitely choose to go. So basically, Alboin has to choose whether he's going to get them into this 
situation in the first place, right? Is it worth it? Because there's risk, right? There's real risk involved to both of them. Um, is he going to do it? Is he going to bring his son in for that? And then in the next section, in the Numenorean section, before we get the interventions of all the other chapters in between, we see that choice being turned around, right? We see the father making it. But again, but notice again the parallel, right? The father is making the choice. The father's getting them into the situation, right? The father's saying, hey, um, I am a leader. I've counted the peril, and uh, I'm going for it, right? I'm rebelling against Sauron. It's going to cause trouble, right? It's going to bring everybody into trouble, but it's your choice whether you follow me or not, right? I'm going to lead. It's your choice whether or not you follow. And so again, that, that drama of, of the choice, what are the father and son going to choose? And apparently they have to choose it more than once, though the choice is not the same every single time, right? So Albuin's choice to go back in time is being paralleled with Elendil's choice to rebel against Sauron and Herendil's choice to remain loyal to his father rather than being loyal to Sauron that's being parallel. We don't really know yet what Alduin's choice was going to be or what's kind of going to be at stake with that. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I think this is really cool, right? But wait, there's more. So how was he going to, after he expanded the story, what were we going to get from the father and son thing? Well, we get one glimpse of that, of where the story was headed. Conversation of Alfwina and Edwina. So this is chapter, the new chapter two, right? The, the, uh, the, the, um, or chapter three, whatever. But anyway, the, the Anglo-Saxon part, the first jump, the first chronological jump after the 20th century. Conversation of Alfwina and Edwina, which is the, uh, Alduin parallel, of course. Edwina is sick of it. He says the Danes have more sense, always pressing on. They go west. They pass round and go to Ireland, while the English sit like Wayalis, waiting to be made into slaves. Edwina says he has heard strange tales from Ireland, a land in the northwest filled with ice, but fit for men to dwell. Holy hermits have been driven out by Norsemen. Alfwina has Christian objections. Edwina says the Holy Brendan did so centuries ago, and lots of others, as, Ma- as Malduin. And they came back. Not that he would want to. Insula Deliciarum, even paradise. So, Iceland is paradise, right? Alfwina objects that paradise cannot be got to by ship. You'll find that Iceland is not, in fact, very nice, but not actually paradise. There are deeper waters between us than Garsedge. Roads are bent. You can come back in. You can you can come back in the end. No escape by ship. Edwina says he does not think it true and hopes it isn't. At any rate, their ancestors had won new lands by ship. Quotes story of Shaif. Right, so here's where we get King Sheev and the story of uh, of um, of King Sheev. Okay, so notice what we see. Notice the drama here in this story. Right, we get tension between the father and son. Tension which is parallel to, though not identical to, Elendo and Herendo. Right. Um, notice the discontent of Edwina and his desire to travel. His Desire to go, you know, that like, we're, let's go off and let's travel. Let's go. Let's not sit around here. Um, and, um, le, you know, the Danes have more sense. Let's do like the Danes. Right. Let's press on. Let's go west. And Alfwina is has Christian objections and is saying we can't get to be, you know, he's giving him the lore of the bent roads and everything. Right. OK. Um, in the end, they go off with 10 neighbors. 
pursued by Vikings off Lundy. Wind takes them out to sea and persists. Eodwina falls sick and says odd things. Alfwina dreams too, mountainous seas. The straight road. Water, island of Azores? Off. Alfwina restores, restrains Eodwina, thinks it a vision of delirium, the vision of Arisea and the sound of voices, resigns himself to die, but prays for Eodwina, sensation of falling, they come down in real sea, and west wind blows them back, land in Ireland. Okay. Um. Uh... It's really hard to piece together exactly what the story is here. They seem to end up going on the straight road, right? Um, so you have what seems like kind of both of them are kind of confirmed. That is, Edwina wants to pick up and go west, right? And they do apparently go west. And um, Alfwina is saying, yeah, but the roads are bent. There's no really any point. But they actually do end up going onto the straight road. So there kind of was some... Some kind of point, but then what happens is really clear. They get the vision of Arisea, or is it is it so they don't actually get there, but they just have a vision of it and then end up returning in the end. But there's they're really there, and they get sick and they fall and any I don't you know and it's it's a it's a little bit unclear exactly what's going on here. But um, um, anyway, I um. We we get anyway glimpses of how I I, I love this I'm, I'm interested in these passages because it's it's the one kind of third thing that we get we can see sort of the parallels and the movement between the 20th century bit with Alboin and Alduin and the 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 Numenorean bit with Elendil and Herendil this is the only glimpse that we get of that father son plot um, in any of the other versions right so um, so and to give us kind of a third point to sort of try to make a trend and begin to see how that story is going to be developing. Um, and I got to tell you, I think it's really cool. I mean, I, uh, it's not like I can pretend that the written chapters of the lost road are like the best thing ever. Right. I mean, they're kind of quirky. It's not like this is the, probably going to become the greatest novel of all time. But it's really fascinating. Um, and I think it has a lot of potential. I mean, the the, the the way that you've got that theme of longing and desire and the different ways in which it works out and how that, where that's going to culminate and where that's going to take us, I think it's, it's really interesting to think about, especially when you overlay that repeated image of the eagles of the lords of the west rising up. I love that touch. And, uh, and then we get the story of the father and son and how, you know, we get multiple versions of the story of the father and son and yet the one thread connecting them all, um, you know, the Albuin and Alduin thread, which, which connects a lot of them, um, culminating in uh, Elendil and Herendil. I, I, the the concept of this story, or the concepts of this story, are really rich and really complex, um, and I would have loved to see it really worked out. Um, especially since I would have really loved to see what he did with with the historical material, 
right? I would have loved to see him write a full Anglo-Saxon story with the incorporation of King Sheev and all that stuff, right? How would that have gone? What would that have looked like? Um, the Ice Age stuff, right? The Tuatha de Danann stuff. The, uh, I, I, I just, it would have been awesome, right? The cave paintings, Karita. Yeah, exactly. When we were getting the, the Ice Age things, right? How would the cave paintings have fit into that? How would the the longing have been, what would have been the, the, uh, the, you know, sort of the external tension, right, with the father and son at that point. There's so much. Um, but again, it's not just the sort of emptinesses, right, or the, 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 the concept that I have no idea where he would go with, but, but these threads that we can see for where this story was going and what was going to be tying this book all together. And it's really interesting and it's really well done. Um, Anyway, but he didn't write it. Um, as I say, we'll come back to this stuff when we do the Notion Club papers in a couple of years. Um, but it, assuming the electorate votes in Sauron defeated um, in its due course. But um, uh, any, anyway, I... I, I um, so yeah, we'll we'll, get, we'll see him revisit it. So we'll get to come back to some of this stuff and see some of this stuff developed a little bit more later on. But for now, we have to leave it behind because Tolkien left it behind. Um, I didn't quite get to King Sheave, but almost. I only have one more slide. Okay, well, it's divided into two slides because it's a long section of King Sheave. But there's only one more bit that I wanted to talk about that I didn't get to, so I almost got there. Um, we'll start with King Sheave next time and then move on to uh, the Annals which will, uh, the Annals of Valinor, which we'll do next time. But thanks for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this central text, you know, the sort of the titular text of this, uh, of this book, The Lost Road. Um, we now return to our Silmarillion development. So we're going to go back to the Annals and back to the Quinta. We'll do a little bit of review of what we saw in the shaping of Middle-earth uh, as we move forward into that material next time. But again, don't forget King Sheev. If you skipped the poem, go back and read it. You've got a whole other week to go back and read the prose version and read the poetic version. Read it aloud. You must read it aloud. Um, Tolkien's uh, modern Anglo-Saxon meter, his modern alliterative meter is gorgeous. Read it aloud. Okay. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about King Sheev next time. Thanks everybody. Good night. See you guys next week. Bye.